Hi, Jared Lida here. I want to let you know that there will be an addendum at the end of this message, uh, clarifying some remarks that I make on transgenderism, tribalism, and a paper that I wrote for seminary last fall. Listen in, enjoy, listen all the way to the end. Thanks. Uh, we are going to shift gears here. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 1. Last week, we started a new series called The Whole Story, and that's what these study guides are about. There's a little intro to the study guide in the, in the beginning here. There's a biblical, like a timeline. If, you're, um, if you just want some clarity on how did, how did what in the world, with, what is the thing with humanity? How did humanity progress from the garden all the way through? What's the story of, of Israel um, in the world it's difficult stuff for some of us to piece together. And quite honestly, it's just complex. The story of God is complex. And it takes a lifetime uh, to study his word. So I want to ask this question. We're going to be talking about the creation of, um, of humanity this morning. And I want to ask this question. How did you come to know yourself? How did you come to know who you uniquely are? Over time, what, was, what were some of the key ways that you discovered who you actually are? want to dialogue here. Like, what were some of those moments? So I want you to talk back to me. Was it moving out of mom and dad's house? Like, was it getting your first job? Like, what were, what were some of the key markers in your life? Just a, a word or a phrase. Like, what were some of the key ways that you came to know and understand who you uniquely are? Okay, when you came to meet Jesus Christ. Okay, that was a defining moment for you. That was the good Jesus answer. You got the Bible answer. It was having kids right that, that shows us parents some things doesn't it learning to drive yeah freedom what else what are some of those key markers for you got a job started working responsibility bringing home a paycheck getting a dirt bike all right you're growing up my man i like it nearly dying Okay, so, so brushes with death have a, a really unique way of teaching us who we are. Anything else? Enneagram. Okay. <laughs> Controversial. I like it. Yeah, like just trying to gain and gather some language for how a person is wired, how you're wired. Losing babies. Life experience, yeah. Counseling. Counseling. Getting face-to-face -face with somebody who will tell you who you are. It's helpful. A number of uh, theologians uh, in various Christian traditions have written about self-knowledge, um, and their conclusions are interesting. I'll start with the Apostle Paul. Um, in about 60 AD, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, and he said this. He said to them, Take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So take it off in order to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self, the one that is created, created, listen to this, according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. Augustine, a few hundred years later, in about 400 AD, a theologian in northern Africa. He said, how can you draw close to God when you are far from yourself? And then this prayer, grant, Lord, that I may know myself, 
that I may know thee. St. Teresa of Avila in about 1500 AD, she was a Spanish mystic. She said, almost all problems in the spiritual life, so notice that spiritual life, stem from a lack of self-knowledge, a lack of understanding who we are. John Calvin, one of the reformers, in 1536, the opening lines, the very first lines of his Institutes of the Christian um, Religion, this great like, volume of work that he did on theology, he says this, Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. And then he writes, this is so interesting, but as these are connected together by many ties, it's not easy to determine which of the two proceeds and gives birth to the other. So what Calvin is noting here is like, I don't quite know, like, does my knowledge of God start with my knowledge and understanding that I'm here? Or does my knowledge that I'm here and my knowledge of who I am actually begin with beholding who God is? He says they're so interwoven that it's hard, it's hard to understand where one begins and the other ends. And then a, a pastor and a counselor in 2020, a man named Robert Cheong said this, it is extremely important to pursue self-awareness. When we lack self-awareness, we misunderstand ourselves. And that leads to misunderstanding God. A knowledge of self, particularly of who we are in relationship to God, is part of God's good design for us. So awareness of God, awareness of self, they're two intricately related realities. So to know ourselves rightly, we need to know something of the God who has crafted us in his image. So turn in your Bibles with me to the first page, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28 this morning. I'll give you a second to get there. I'm guessing it's on page 1 of the black Bibles in the room. I don't know if it is or not. So just as a way of reminder, last week where we picked up was, where we began was the last verse in Genesis chapter 1, where God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And so we talked about his work in creation, his sovereignty over creation, everything in its proper place, everything working as it should. And now we're kind of focusing in a bit on the creation of man and woman. And this is what Genesis 1.26 says. Then God said, let us make man, this word man here means humans, in our image after our likeness. Notice the plural forms there. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Three times. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
This is God's word to us. You pray with me. Father, would you, uh, would you speak to us through your inspired word this morning? We are probably going to have more questions after today than we have answers for, and yet there are answers to be had, and there's a direction that you want us to look. So will you orient us to look to you that we may know ourselves? In Jesus' name, amen. You are made in the image of God, and this is his very good idea. Amen. You are made in his image, and he means it to be that way. He means for you and I, you, yes, you, to represent him in the time and in the place in which you live. Like this is, this is really good news. Right on the opening pages of the scriptures that we are made in the image of God and it's not like, it's not a secondary choice that he made. This is, he means to do this and so he does. We're, we're talking through this, we're, every week you'll see this, this slide up on the screen, the story so far. And so what we're doing is we're building the story of God in creation and we're telling the story of the gospel as it begins, the good news of God as it begins from the first pages of Genesis all the way through to Revelation. Go ahead and advance the next slide if you would, please. The story so far. So God created a kingdom and he is the king. That was the big idea of last week. This week that we add on to that and we say, but he made human beings to represent him in that kingdom. So he's getting us in on this action. Image and likeness. Those are two phrases that we just read through in Genesis chapter one. Image and likeness is, it's this simple and pretty easy to understand subject, but it's also, it has depth to it and it has nuance. So what I mean by that is it's simple enough for young kids to understand, but it's also complex enough that intellectual adults over the course of a lifetime can totally get into the weeds over what is what all is contained in the idea of people being created in the image and in the likeness of God. Now, remember also this whole series is a, is a flyover. It's a high altitude flyover of biblical theology. So remember, wherever you want to dig deep on any of the topics or any of the questions that come into your mind, yes, you should absolutely do that. Absolutely. Theologians for thousands of years have disagreed on whether image and likeness mean the same or different things. They've disagreed on if we separate image and likeness or if these are um, kind of two sides of a whole or a, two words that are descriptive of one thing. We're not going to solve any of that here. But Chris Bruno, who wrote a book called The Whole Story of the Bible in 16 Verses, which I'm leaning on for some structure for this sermon series, he says, he says this. He says, some argue the image of God has to do primarily with our ability to use reason and intellect. Others argue that the image of God is tied to our ability to relate to God and to relate to other people, but still others say it is linked to the task and the commission that God gave to Adam and Eve. He goes on to write, he says, but it's most likely that the image of God is bound up in both the characteristics and the relational tendencies that we share with God. So at a minimum, here's what you and I are to do with image and likeness. We're to hold all of it together. 
We're to hold what is contained in and meant by image and likeness. We're to hold it together. So yes, we, we use our reason and we use our intellect. Yes, we share in God's relational attributes. So we relate to him, we relate to the people around us, and also we share Adam and Eve's task and commission to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it. Last week, I talked a bit about biblical theology and how the idea of biblical theology is tracing themes that often, not always, but mo- but very often begin in Genesis. And we trace themes and threads that run all the way through the scriptures. So, so we, see, um, we see rivers and we see waters in the opening pages of Genesis. There is a great river that flows from the city of God, the garden city in Revelation. We see a garden in Genesis. We see a garden city in Revelation. We have a king in Genesis. We have a king of all kings in Revelation. So these themes, they, they, they run all the way throughout Scripture. One of the biblical theological themes that begins in Genesis and runs all the way to Revelation is this idea of image. The, the Hebrew word uh, for image means a sort of a statue or a replica. That's what's contained in the Hebrew word. The, the Greek is uh, icon. You recognize that word. An icon is a, a, some sort of a physical, um, tactile thing that represents something else. Um, image is not just a, an, an important theme in the Bible, but it was an important theme in ancient Near Eastern cultures also. It was all over the surrounding nations. And so here, what I'm going to do actually is I'm going to quote a guy who's quoting a guy. So Tremper Longman is a theologian who is quoting a guy named Walter Brueggemann. And Walter, this is what he writes. It'll be up on the screen. As Walter Brueggemann has pointed out, the Hebrew word for image Selim is also used for the construction of royal images. Royal meaning kingly images. So he, he says, that is while the king could not be physically present throughout his entire realm, what a king would do is set up images of himself throughout the kingdom to remind people of his authority. So he writes, in this sense, the image of God may be taken to mean that human beings are God's representations in creation. We reflect the divine glory in the world. Though the exact force of being created in the image of God might escape us, it clearly highlights the special relationship that God has between himself and his creatures. Now, um, in the ancient world, kings were often considered gods. And the people of these nations that they ruled would be forced, compelled to bow down to them and to honor them as gods. Pharaoh was considered a god in ancient Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar would have people bow down to him in his Babylonian empire. These powerful, these great and powerful men were regarded by the people as gods. And as part of their rule, what they would do is they would have images that represented them. They would have these images made and these images would be placed all around in the city center. They'd be placed out in the suburbs and they would also be positioned in the far reaches of these kings' kingdoms. Why? To tell people in those villages and in those places to show them who it is that is in authority and to also warn people in neighboring nations who it is who has authority here. 
right? So you're out walking along in a field and you see an image of Nebuchadnezzar and all of a sudden you realize, whoa, 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 we're like on the outskirts of Babylon here. We're right on the borders of Babylon. So there's something in addition to that in the way that images would be used in ancient Near Eastern kingdoms and cultures as well. In addition to kings being considered gods, these nations would also, they would just have gods. They would have mythical deities. We, we read about them in our Old Testaments, the Baals or the Ashtoreth or uh, Molech was a god of a surrounding nation who people um, sacrificed children to, babies to. These gods of these nations, they would also create images of these gods that were responsible for a certain aspect of culture and uh, were deemed to have authority over some realm of the natural world or the spiritual world. They would build temples to these gods and then they would place these statues in these temples. Why? To remind the worshipers who are in these temples who the temple belonged to. There are really important parallels here with Israel. Image is a major, major theme in the Old Testament and and in the New Testament, in the scriptures. Yahweh, the God of Israel, he would post up statues of himself throughout his temple, the Garden of Eden. And he would meant to have these statues of himself spread out into the far reaches of his kingdom, the world that he has created. But the major difference between Yahweh and these neighboring kings and gods was what? Yahweh's images were actually alive. They were people, human beings. Men and women are image bearers of Yahweh, Israel's God and king. That's what we can learn through Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Isn't that like... As this starts to settle on me, I, 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 lose, I, lose, I lose words. I, I find myself in awe. I'll talk about that a little bit more. Like we are, um, we are supremely designed to represent God and his unseen presence and glory and to make his glory visible to the world that he has created. Now, we're also forbidden under threat of death to make images of Yahweh according to the Ten Commandments. The very first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment is you shall make no images of anything to represent me. Why? Because a statue cannot represent him like a person can. And so as beautiful as we might think works of art and statues are, A statue can never carry the beauty and the depth and the complexity of a person. And so they defame him. Because people are the images. People are the ones who carry forth his image and likeness. Do you have questions? (laughs) I have so many questions. Uh, For, like... Simultaneously, I find myself in awe, and I am also like bewildered by God's design. And I think 
this is his point. This is the author of Scripture, the Holy Spirit's point. Like, we, he wants us to use our rational minds, yes, and he wants us to embrace mystery. The ways of Yahweh, the ways of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are deep. So his command to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply is Yahweh's way of filling the entire earth with his glory. There is so much good stuff here. Track it down. Track it down. Become a student. Go find answers. I would be happy to help you with it, but we're not going to get to all of it this morning. No way. A second point this morning, uh, men and women are also co-rulers with Yahweh, with the God of Israel. Look again at uh, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And here's the part about co-rulership or vice regency. Let them have dominion. That, that word means government. Let them govern the fish of the sea and have dominion over the birds of the heavens. So think realm. Think all of the fish in the waters, the birds of the heavens, the livestock on the earth, so the beasts of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And now look at what he does. He blesses them. His bl- this, you are made in the image of God, and this is his very good idea. He blesses creation, and God says to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Every living thing there, he just encapsulated all of the beasts of the field and the, the, the insects and the things that creep over the earth. He brought them all together. This is called a parallelism in Hebrew, and, and it's not, we, Western readers, we look at this and we go, man, it's redundant. He just said that two sentences ago. I got it. No, no, no. The way that Hebrew authors worked is they'd often use repetition to drive their points home. It's called the recursive approach. And so every time you're reading Isaiah or Jeremiah, you're reading these long books by the prophets, and you're like, they just said that. They just said that. They just said that. Why do they keep repeating themselves? They're doing it intentionally so that the reader would not misunderstand their point and so that their, their main points would be driven home. Now, we see that parallelism there, and then ma- the creation of man and woman in between. And there are two points to this creation of man and woman. Adam and Eve are co-rulers with God, so they're meant to rule under his rule, but they're also co-rulers with one another. All, all, we, can say, we can say a great deal about men and women and about their distinctions, about the distinctions between the two genders. In our culture, uh, the topic of sexuality and the topic of gender, right now it's polarizing and it's troubling and we find ourselves confused and in hot water um, based on the, the kinds of things that we're saying and how we're approaching gender. Now, I am on the front end of a learning journey, in particular around transgenderism. I'm interested, but I'm completely unskilled in the particulars. I understand that. 
about this point in my learning journey. And so where I'm at is I'm, I, I don't mean to teach on it. I mean to be quiet. I mean to learn. I mean to come to the scriptures repeatedly. I mean to give myself as a student to voices who have done work around this stuff and to try to understand rather than just issue ignorant judgment. Right. Now, some of you are facing this issue really close to home. Like it's, it's in your families. Uh, you're in pain friendships, some of you students in schools, you're hearing about this, your, your friends are, are, are um, testing boundaries and limits and, and trying to understand who they are. For others of us in this room, it's still a debate that rages somewhere out there. Idaho, still very insulated from what's going on in, in cities right now, although like the internet kind of brings it all together. Um, for some of us in the room, I'm, I mean this lovingly and firmly, but you have closed your heart to other image bearers who are wrestling with these questions. You have already issued judgment on them and you have decided you will have nothing to do with them as people. I want to lovingly rebuke you and to ask you to open your heart to people who bear the image of God and for you and I to remember distinctly that every single one of us were enemies of God at one time. Wrestle with it. You want to talk about it? We can talk about it. Now, I'm going to begin to touch on sexuality and gender more specifically in the coming days as I learn and as I grow in skill. But a, a, um, a challenge that I faced this last fall was I'm, I'm going to seminary and a, a paper, uh, I was writing a paper on Genesis 1 through 3 and I titled it Adam and Eve, Male and Female Qualities and Responsibilities from Genesis chapters 1 through 3. And I did a deep dive on gender distinctions from these first three chapters in Genesis and what I realized was that a good a good portion of the conclusions that I came to weren't actually in the text. They weren't there. I had actually uh, imported them onto the text of Genesis 1 through 3. Now, that's not, to, that's not to, to say that the Bible doesn't say things and add color and light to what's occurring in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. Of course, the Bible does. But my challenge by my professors was to deal with Genesis 1 through 3 on the face. What's in the text? Prove it from the text. And I'm facing this pretty consistently in seminary. So much of what I have learned over the years has been the export of something called tribalism. Tribalism is this idea where we adopt and we align with a certain perspective or people group because we deem those people solid and safe. Now, there's something to be said for like sticking to and having boundaries with, with people who are trusted authorities on subjects. But here's the caution that we can, when, when there are problematic issues in those tribes and in those camps, um, we can begin to turn a blind eye to those issues in order to stay allegiant to the tribe. And so we can become blind to what is actually true. And we need to just be aware of that dynamic. My paper on Genesis 1 through 3 had scribbles everywhere as my professors challenging me to identify where these certain positions that I held were in the text. Now, like I said, they, they were elsewhere, some of them, in the Bible, but they weren't, all, we, they weren't there at all in Genesis 1 through 3. 
Here's my point. The way that you and I engage with our Bibles is so important. The lenses, and let's, let's just, let's admit this. The lenses that we read with are sometimes skewed. It's possible for you and I to read ancient Eastern literature with a Western mindset. And we can't help that. We're a product of our environment, right? We're, we're Westerners, but we have to try to get our head into the intent of the original authors. Now, in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, strictly speaking, there are several things being communicated, and, and it's not all that complex. First, the image bearers are created by God as a differentiated pair. Male and female, he created them. They're distinct from one another, and they're necessary for one another. This differentiated pair, distinct, there are differences, but they are also designed to work in partnership. Um, John Calvin, he said, man alone is but half a human being. A man all by himself, no women in the picture, is but half a human being. You, you get, there's, it's hyperbolic, but you get, the, you get what he's kind of driving at. Like, ladies, when you go out of town and you come back and, like, husband's hair is a mess and the house is a mess, and, like, it's obvious that man is but half a human being. <laughs> Rise up, guys. You can do this. S second, so they're a differentiated pair in complement to one another, meant to work together as a team. Second, God blessed them in their work of being fruitful, being, of filling the earth and of exercising dominion. And that was to be done together. We learn more about their relationship in Genesis chapter 2, but for now, this is what's there in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Adam and Eve, they're blessed by God and commissioned by him to do something, to multiply, that is to have children and to fill the earth, to spread out into the far reaches of his creation, to show something of his glorious presence. They're to rule creation under God's rule. Dominion is a word that's used a couple of times here. And he also uses the words, the author also uses the word subdue here. Dominion means governing, government. It's a theme in biblical theology. And I said this earlier, God is the sovereign king in the garden, but Jesus is also the sovereign king over all kings in Revelation. Image bearers have dominion over creation, but under God's rule. They're given dominion over everything on the earth. That is to say that they were to love creation, and to co-rule it through their care of it. Think shepherd here. They were to shepherd creation. They were to model their own kind-hearted rule over God's kind-hearted rule of them. God names Adam. Adam names the animals. Then Adam gets this special privilege even of naming his wife, who he rejoiced over as God presented her to him. Men continue to sing songs about women to this day. Do they not? Think about like the genre of love songs. There's an echo of Eden here. Adam and Eve did not have dominion over God, but under God. And so they're never ultimate in authority. We need to understand this. God governs us. We do not govern him. Talked about this briefly last week. So you, image bearer, are accountable to God 
for his creation, for the way that you steward his creation. We bristle at accountability as a people. And, and it's, it's interesting as we consider creation. From our vantage point in 2022, we know something's wrong, right? We know something's off. We're in the first, the early pages of Genesis. Things haven't quite gone off the rails here yet in the storyline. But people don't, we, we understand, people don't steward the earth. They don't steward its resources and its animals as if we're accountable to anyone other than the EPA or fish and game. But according to design, we're stewards, not scorchers. So it's not just come in and use it all up and to heck with it, God will renew it one day. But it's to care for it. It's to use its resources. We can use the animals. We can use the earth. But we're to look after it with care. According to design, we're stewards, not scorchers. Now, a steward is somebody who is... um, employed to manage another person's property. That's just like the baseline definition of what a steward is. Somebody employed to manage another person's property. Um, Some have taken these verses to mean that we can do whatever we want with all of creation. But uh, here's a question, like what farmer could you imagine who owns acreage and a a number of animals? What, What farmer would abuse his land and his animals and just use it up without caring for it? You'd shake your head at that kind of posture and behavior. What husband who is stronger than his wife and children abuses them? You'd be tempted to give your fists to that person as a taste of his own foolishness. Chris Bruno, he says this well. He says, the command to have dominion meant that Adam and Eve were to rule the animals and the rest of the earth in the way that God himself would rule them. The command to have dominion meant that Adam and Eve were to rule the animals and the rest of the earth in the way that God himself would rule them. God, how would you steward this land, giving shape and beauty to it, these animals? Now, um, I I was wrestling through this with my wife and with Trevor this week a bit. I want to talk to you about Jesus. Um, I feel caught in this interesting dilemma, though, between the point in in this story that we're in and where God sees everything that he had made and behold, it is very good. And next week, page three of your Bible, chapter three, where everything goes off the rails, Every good story has a great deal of tension, uh, and tension will build for us next week too. So I want us to live with some of this, t- this tension of imagining humanity in perfect harmony, stewarding things as God has created us to steward them. I don't want to try to resolve all of that tension right now, but I do want to just capitalize on this before we're done here. Um, A note about tension when you wrestle with the scriptures, when you read the scriptures. Tension is all over the pages of your Bible if you're reading it with eyes to see. There's tension everywhere in the story of the scripture and there's tension all around us. There's tension in culture. There's tension in our relationships. There's tension in our jobs. Thinking about our own spiritual life, like when we're trying to attend to God, we're trying to just give him a, a portion of our mind and our day and our presence. Like, what is it? Like, 
this moment when we, fo- when, we, when we slow down and we try to focus our minds on the Bible and our eyes on the page, all hell seems to rise up in defiance. What is that? Is it just that I'm a distracted person? Or is there something else at play there too? We try to make room for God, distractions assail us, right? Like, this is our experience, this is my experience. All over the pages of scripture, we see these contrasts, we see these tensions, good, evil, righteousness, and justice, fidelity, betrayal, light, dark, truth, lies, life, death. We're seeing this all over the page of the Bible. But tension is not always our enemy. Tension is not always our enemy. Tension in the pages of the scriptures can draw us right in to exactly where God wants us. And the tension of recognizing that we are, dis- we are a distracted people when we try to attend to God can be a metric for us to understand that something is off. And I need to think about this and consider this and find a root source of some of this distraction and lean in rather than quit. Uh, It just doesn't work for me. I can't focus. Are there other things in our world and in our use of time and our use of technology that are getting in between us, that are creating frenetic minds and activity? What does it look like for us to slow our paces? The Bible is this uh, this captivating true story unlike any other work of literature on earth. It is absolutely Captivating. So if you will resolve yourself to train yourself to understand it, it will draw you deeper and deeper and deeper into the love of God and the love of his people. I want to talk to you about Jesus Christ this morning, and I, want, I hope that you want to hear about him as well. We know things go badly for humanity. We're living that I want to talk about Jesus the way that the New Testament talks about him, particularly around the idea of image. I want to bring forward Jesus as the image of God, the perfect image of God, the flawless image of God who restores humanity. Adam and Eve created in the image of God. Things go, they choose their own way. They elevate themselves as gods over God. They disregard his rule. They disregard his regulation. They disregard his good intent for them. They disciple themselves to another and become students of God's enemy, Satan himself. And they choose to follow. And that plunges humanity. We'll talk about this next week. That plunges humanity into a sea of despair and difficulty and tension and conflict and war and murder and all of the things that you and I are living in right now. But God does not abandon his people. So we're fast forwarding a bit in the story. Like we, many of us, like we, we know like the Christ is coming in the storyline. And I want us to see, like, turn in your Bibles. Uh, use your table of contents if you need to. It's in your New Testament. Turn to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. I want to I show you this language of image here as it relates to Jesus. He is the new Adam. Adam has disregarded the rule of God. Jesus has come to keep it perfectly. The scriptures, the Apostle Paul in Romans refers to Jesus as the new Adam who has come to undo, to make, in the, in the words of a, a 
um, Sally Lloyd-Jones, who wrote the Jesus Storybook Bible, he is going to make all of the sad things come untrue. Colossians 1, 15 and 16. He, Jesus, is the, here's the language, image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. What that firstborn means is not that he was born first or created. Jesus is uncreated. It means he has the rights. He's the preeminent human being. He's the supreme human. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Christ and for Christ. He is the perfect image, the flawless image of the invisible God. Now go to the right a a long ways to Hebrews. It's near the end of your Bible. It'll be right after James, or I'm sorry, right before James. Go to uh, Hebrews. If you go to Peter and 1 Peter, you've gone too far. Go left if that's the case. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, the very beginning of the book of Hebrews. Listen to what the writer says. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. There's that same language that Paul was using in Colossians. He is the radiance of the glory of God. That means that he, in his perfection, in his ways, his way of life, he is radiating the glorious goodness of God. And he is the exact imprint, look at that word imprint, stamp, seal of his nature. He, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now go back left, and here's where we will end. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I might have written it wrong in my notes. It might actually be 2 Corinthians. So if you turn to 1 Corinthians 4 and you're like, what? It's 2. 2? Okay. Therefore, since we have this ministry, because we were shown mercy ministry of being ambassadors and reconcilers. We do not give up. Instead, we have renounced secret and shameful things, not acting deceitfully or distorting the word of God, but commending ourselves before God to everyone's conscience by an open display of the truth. Paul writes, but if our gospel is veiled, that means if it's obscured, It is veiled to those who are perishing. They can't see it. They can't understand it. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Look at this. Who is the image of God? We are not proclaiming ourselves, but we are proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord, as the perfect, flawless image, and ourselves as your servants for his sake. We're created after his image. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Here's my last point where we'll conclude. In Christ Jesus, our ideals are being restored, church. Because of Jesus Christ, our ideals, the the wheels coming off the bus in Genesis chapter 3 is not the end-all, be-all for us. There's actually something different happening in the community of God's people. As those who have seen the light of the glory of Jesus Christ, the flawless image of God, and entrusted ourselves to him as we 
ourselves trust him, we are coming to see that this, like this image of God, Jesus Christ, is shown flawlessly in Jesus, and because of him, we are being recreated. We're no longer patterned after the first human, Adam, who opposed and who ran from Yahweh, but we're now patterned after Jesus Christ, who now rules our hearts and therefore our lives. And because he rules over us, every single one of us are invited to echo God's loving rule over creation. This is what we were created for. God created a kingdom, and he is the king, but he made human beings to represent him in that kingdom. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away, the new has come. And so as we come to know ourselves, we come to know God. As we come to know all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus through the gospel, we can come to know ourselves as well. Next week, we're going to consider why we need to be made into this new image. But for now, the story so far, God created a kingdom. He's the king. He has created human beings to represent him in that kingdom. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we, um, <clears throat> we are your creation. Would we see ourselves as such? Yes, uh, the, the law of sin and death has been broken for those who are in you. The power of sin over us has been broken and its remnants linger. We wrestle and we fight sin within us, sin outside of us, still waging war against us. And so with the Apostle Paul, we say, we don't do what we want to do and we do what we're not supposed to do. And we cry out, who will save us from this body of death? And then because of the Spirit of God who you have given us graciously, we say, but thanks be to God for rescuing us through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So would you strengthen your church, Father, this morning to believe this, to embrace this reality that we have been created flawlessly, things have gone off the rails, but you are doing something in your people, even though we cannot see it all of the time. You are doing something, you are guiding history to a finite um, end, human world history as we live here and now. It is coming to a conclusion, the judgment seat of Christ, where all of those who are in your son will be set free and pardoned finally. We know that in our hearts. We rejoice in that truth. We, re we rehearse that truth. And there's coming a day when we're gonna see it with our eyes and hear it with our ears and be ushered into a new reality where sin's presence has been eradicated. We look forward to it. And until then, we look to you. Keep us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, all of life, Jared here. I want to bring some clarity to a portion of my message on February 13th um, that caused a number of you to reach out with uh, questions, uh, really looking for clarity. And, and I just want to say on the front end, I'm, I, I appreciate your graciousness in coming directly to me and asking me for that clarity. Um, Haddon Robinson 
is a preacher and a professor on preaching. And he has this famous line that just gets passed around in pastoral circles that I'm learning in a fresh way again today. And it's this, if it's a mist in the pulpit, it'll be a fog in the pews. And what he's speaking to is the, uh, the he's speaking toward the importance of clarity in the pulpit. So um, in a portion of the sermon, I talked a bit about transgenderism and my approach to it. And so um, what I, I ended up going back and I listened to the audio and it's absolutely true. I wasn't as clear as I could have been. And so for those who know me personally and who know me well, uh, you are able to infer from my from my remarks what I was trying to say. But I, I recognize there are a number of people who may listen and there are visitors to our church and then there are other people who are just new and checking things out and you don't know me as well. And so it was much more difficult for you to um, identify where I stand or where our church stands on certain issues. So again, I'm learning the importance of clear communication around hot button cultural issues. And I would just like to say I apologize if I've caused you to distrust all of Life Church or myself. Haddon Robinson's wisdom does definitely ring true. Um, now, here's here's what I want to say. After listening to that portion of my message, it was about a six-minute stretch. It'll be in. You've probably already listened to it. Um, I recognize that I weave together three important topics without the nuance and the clarifications that were necessary to help you distinguish between them and to dissect them. And I mashed them all together, um, which was which was wrong and it was clumsy of me. So I want to bring clarity if you're still among those who are wondering, what were you saying, Jared? What in the world just happened there? Uh, on the issue of the topic of transgenderism, um, I was talking about the creation of male and female in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, and I noted the cultural dynamic of transgenderism and of sexuality. I mentioned that uh, I'm interested in this topic, but I am still unskilled in the particulars. And I also said that I'm on the front end of my learning journey. So here's the point that I was trying to make there. I care deeply about what God says regarding human sexuality in the scriptures and I'm fairly ignorant when it comes to the conversation that culture is having surrounding transgenderism, the use of pronouns, etc. So let there be no confusion here. I'm biblically orthodox when it comes to sexuality, the sexes, marriage, etc. And in order to translate what the Bible teaches to what culture is presently believing, I need to first understand the conversation they are having. So rather than teach on it, I need to first spend some time and attention humbling myself and learning so that I can speak with skill into this topic. And here's a pastoral note. Um, there are some people in our church who have family members who have declared themselves transgender. Maybe that's you and you're listening right now. In a pastoral moment, on Sunday, I was letting those folks know that I see them. I see you. I'm aware that these challenges, and this pain is present in the room. And I want you to know that I have compassion. Second, I wanted other people in the room to consider how they're engaging this topic of transgenderism when they see it in their news feeds and they see it and they encounter it and they hear about it. 
Um, so we can have this tendency, especially in Idaho, this insulated region of the country where we kind of relegate this to a topic that rages somewhere, quote, out there when it hasn't hit us, us as close to home. But this topic, this challenge in society, it's not going away. Transgender conversation and ideologies will continue to come closer to home, closer to us in the coming days. And then I, there was this moment in the message around some rebuke, gentle rebuke, but rebuke nonetheless. There are some of us in the room who have deemed transgender folks unworthy, deplorable. You have discounted them. You have walled yourself off from them. We have closed our hearts to them and disregarded them, conveniently forgetting that they are also image bearers of Yahweh, image bearers of God. And so in that moment of rebuke, I wanted to let you know that I'm going to be relentless on this. We must remember for those of us who are in the family of God, who are followers of Jesus, that we were each once at one time, the scriptures say, enemies of God. And Jesus, our Lord, calls us to serve the least of these and to serve our enemies. So whether they're ideological en enemies, whether they're posturing themselves as our enemies, or whether we're just in our hearts regarding them as enemies, we are to love and to serve our enemies. We're commanded to love them, we're commanded to pursue them, we're commanded to have compassion toward them, and we're commanded to evangelize all who are lost. And so all who are lost without partiality. This is a hard command, but the Spirit of God will strengthen us to pursue it. That's my note on transgenderism. A quick note on tribalism. This is a second theme that I just weaved together, kind of compressed, uh, and I shouldn't have. My, warn, my warning about tribalism, though, can stand on its own. Um, that was, it was sloppy communication, note taken. If you want to know more about this, reach out to me. And then last, my, uh, I'd written a seminary paper on Genesis 1 through 3 and gender roles and had compressed this into the topic of transgenderism and also tribalism. And so by connecting my remarks about what I'm learning in seminary to those remarks about transgenderism, what I did was unwittingly, I gave the impression that the conclusions I was making in my paper had something to do with transgenderism, when in fact, they didn't. The topic of transgenderism didn't come up once in my paper. It was 12 pages long, and it didn't come up one time. It wasn't in play there. Rather, I was making conclusions in that paper about household roles between men and women and in a marriage that aren't actually there in Genesis 1 through 3. Some of those conclusions that, were, that I, I was making in the paper do appear in the household codes in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 and in other places. But again, I wasn't studying and I wasn't writing on those passages. I was studying and I was writing on Genesis 1 through 3. So my professor challenged me because I was importing things revealed 1,500 years later in Ephesians and Colossians onto the text of Genesis 1 through 3. I hope that makes sense. Uh, last, for those of you who've come to me with questions, thanks. I really appreciate it. I appreciate your graciousness. I am learning. And I hope that each of you know that you can come, to, you can come my way at any point if you have questions. Love you all of life.